we all want what's best for her, yeah. right? We do. We really do. Everybody wants to improve her situation. No one agrees with it, but uh, taking her and making such a big change as they've proposed is horrendous. Hi, I'm Heidi Harriet. Welcome to Animal Tales, where we talk about my favorite subject, animals. Today's interview is really compelling. I look forward to you guys listening to it. I am talking with Mark Simmons, who wrote a book called Killing Kiko. There was a movie years ago in the 90s called Free Willy about the, the killer whale being returned to the wild. The real whale was Kiko, and Mark was part of the project as an animal trainer and behaviorist, and ultimately left the project because he did not agree with what was going on and the whale's ability to return to the, quote, wild. Well, fast forward to this week in April 2023, and there's information in a press conference that a whale that's at the Sequarium in Miami is now going to be the next whale returned to the wild. The first one went so well in their opinion. Folks like Mark, who are actually trainers and have worked with the animals, and the folks who've actually worked with Lolita are in complete disagreement about what is happening, what is truly in the best interest of the animal. It's a great conversation with Mark Simmons about the return of killer whales to the wild. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Heidi. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled uh, you were doing this very last minute because a story has just come up that really caught my attention and honestly is one of the reasons I do the podcast to tell the other side of the story, uh, not the warm emotional cue the unicorn and rainbow side, but the reality. And um, I'll start real quick by giving you the premise of where I come from. We see a story about animals, and you're going to talk about your book, Killing Kiko. And um, we see a story about animals, and we quickly apply an emoji. And I think of social media now. You and I both were in this before social media. But happy face or the hugging heart, right? Oh, it's so wonderful. And then the very angry red face and the tear. And in my media training, one of the things I knew coming into it and I learned how to articulate is the information, the solution, the training, even the dilemma of it all lies in the middle. And that's the thinking phase. Hmm, be thoughtful, be curious. There's more to the story. It's never as black and white or as easy as unicorns and rainbows or the devil is in the, you know involved in this. The in, it's all in the middle, and that's where my podcast tries to take, you know, our listeners to the middle. So I've done enough talking. I'd like you to tell us about your background and how you got into working with killer whales. Yeah, sure. Well, we have a little bit of a, a similar background. I was raised on a, a small horse farm in, in Virginia um, and some cattle you know, pretty small, but it was really interesting because as I became a professional animal trainer, I looked back on, on what I learned from my dad and he was a, he was a positive reinforcement trainer and he, he didn't even know what that meant, <laughs> but yeah. that was my example, you know? So the first time I went to SeaWorld, Virginia country boy, I thought, oh my gosh, I have to do that. And so I set every cell in my body towards that goal 
and and uh, got in started as an animal trainer in 1987, I think. Yeah, and um, was that Sea in Orlando? It was SeaWorld in, in Orlando, yeah, okay. and it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. I was there at the right time. My um, mentors and leaders were sticklers for the science of behavior, mm-hmm. um, and so that that just really put me on the right footing for the rest of my career. And then, uh, you know, it's taken me all over the world in the, in thirty five years now that I've been doing this, and uh, it's been an amazing journey. Wow, that's fantastic. By the way, we were in Orlando at the same time because I was at the Arabian Nights dinner attraction. Uh, oh, I and I had seen that show several times. Yeah, that's yeah. Some amazing. I was always really amazed at the, the animal training yeah, that you guys did. Same, pretty much that same time frame. And I had a lot of entertainer friends over at SeaWorld, uh, but... Yeah, so we were we were in that same time. And you say something interesting that it is about timing because where we go now and even if the people you worked with would have had a great philosophy about animal welfare and animal training, companies don't always allow you the latitude to to be very real and practical about it. And when I was with Ringling Brothers for example and when you get government relations, brand management, animal welfare, um, all the PR, all the machines together in one organization, your animal welfare message or what you're trying to get out or in part gets watered down because they're trying to kind of placate or, you know, everyone. So I, I appreciate your comment about timing. I've certainly experienced that in my animal training career as well. So, yeah, yeah. The, the context to that for me is that SeaWorld eventually became a publicly traded company, which I, I have not seen how that dovetails successfully with animal welfare. Yeah. And, um, you know, so during my time, the, the soul of the company was very committed yeah. to animal welfare and rescue and research. Well, I think our, the, for me, the downfall of SeaWorld, and I love SeaWorld. I'm the first one to, to preach the work they do and such. But when um, the, the, Oh, he was he the CEO? He was vice president there, and he made a pact with Wayne Pacelli of HSUS. Uh, Joe, Joe Mamby, yeah. G- yes, I couldn't think of the name. Yeah. yeah. So that that was when I felt like they were, again, trying to play both sides of it. So, and that didn't work out so well either. No, it didn't. <laughs> we all, I wrote him a letter and told him what I thought about it. Not that he, I'm sure he read my letter, but so tell me now about our listeners about uh, the book you wrote, Killing Kiko. This is the Free Willy story. And mm-hmm. I have children who that was their, uh, they were in the age group to really kind of have paid attention to this. So I'm very familiar with the that aspect of it. I wasn't as familiar with what you wrote about. Sure. Well, the short summary is that, you know, um, there was a real whale behind the movie that the movie was based on, but you know, Hollywood, Hollywood tells a simplistic story in real life. It's much more detailed and nuanced than that. Um, Keiko was the, the real whale behind this. And in 1996, they moved him to Oregon in an effort to actually follow the movie and, and have him swim off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were some limited successes, uh, his physical health, because he was in a very, very small pool. There's some parallels there with uh, Tokite Lolita right now. Um, 
and the air pollution in Mexico City was bad, had health effects on him. He had a cutaneous papilloma virus like herpes on his skin. Uh, so he gained weight. He improved in Oregon. But in September of 1998, they moved him to Iceland, which is where he was originally collected at approximately two years of age. Uh, at this point that I'm talking about, he's uh, 20. Okay, so he only lived in, so, in Iceland when he was little, and then he was in Mexico. Is that right? Or well, different so when places? he was when he was collected. See, back then they didn't really have a good measure for the age based on the size of the animal. You know, until we had a successful breeding program in the zoological field, we really didn't understand that they were they were seven feet long and over three hundred pounds the day they're born. Oh my, right. Yeah. So, so I think they overestimated ages back then. And I think he actually was much younger, maybe even just a year when he was collected. And that's important because you, you know, he didn't know anything at that point. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the theories of him going back to the wild was that he would reacquire those skill sets. And of course he didn't have any skill sets. Um, yeah. But they took him to Iceland and uh, five months in Iceland, he did nothing. They thought, well, you know, once we get they, they literally approached this as if the movie, as if it was just about logistics. All we have to do is get him there and he'll do the rest. Yeah. And they even they even said it that way. Um, but after five months in Iceland of him sitting sedentary at the surface, um, what we call logging with cetaceans, um, really kind of this is open water? He is not no, in a he's sea in pen? A, he, He's in a sea pen. Okay. Because just for your audience, um, there's a lot I'm going to take for granted. Heidi, you're probably going to have to keep me on track yeah, here. Yeah, no but problem. For, for your audience, um, you can't just release an animal. There's a there's a permit process. There are criteria you have to meet. There's intervention plans and resources that have to be in place. So, um, yeah, it's it's not a simple process. Okay. Uh, yeah, I didn't from, think that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, so he was in a bay pen that was really no bigger. It's constructed of HDPE pipe that floated on the surface and had nets hanging down the bottom and big concrete rings to keep the bottom formed. Uh, and this was anchored in Klutzvik Bay in Iceland. And uh, that is about the size of Shamu Stadium's front pool, if you've ever seen that, mm -hmm. their show pool, the bay pen was. And then it's surrounded by a larger bay that we eventually ended up netting off and using as a transition uh, area to train him on a few things he needed to know to get out to the ocean. Uh, but after you know his first five months there, nothing was happening. And so the organization was, was kind of freaking out. Uh, mm -hmm. Free Willy Keiko, uh, Free Willy Keiko uh, board of directors was, uh, you know, wanted to see something happen. So at that point in time, they brought us in, myself and three colleagues. Well, we were from the zoological field. I had worked with over 20 killer whales over a decade at SeaWorld. And as you know, I'd learned from some of the best in the field. Uh, but my discipline was behavioral sciences. So let, let's just clarify that real quick. There is behaviorism, behavior modification, which is a field of psychology. And there is uh, ethology, which is the study of natural behavior, which is a field of biology. Okay. So two very different things. And when you're listening to a biologist talk about whales, it's an entirely different thing than when you're listening to someone from behavioral sciences. Um, Keiko's life was behavioral sciences, as is Tokite's and Lolita. Yeah. 
um, they didn't have anybody there that understood that. They were looked at him as a wild whale, measured him by the same yardstick as a wild whale. He was not a wild whale. Yeah. So when they brought us in, uh, we designed a systematic rehabilitation process, behaviorally based, to get him prepared for the wild. There was criteria established. I wrote, I was in charge of that implementation. I was the director of husbandry. So Keiko, I was immediately in charge uh, of Keiko. Mark, a quick um, question here. I don't want you to lose your tra- train of thought. Were yeah. you, At this point, were you on board with the plan or did you come in because you wanted, they were going to do it regardless and you wanted it to be as good as it could be? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, he was already in Iceland. It was right. already happening, right? Yeah. Um, I, I did it because I thought if it could be done, we, we would be able to give it the best chance. However, okay. it was in our contract. It took us months to negotiate being a part of this. It was in our contract that if he didn't meet the stated criteria, that they would accept his long-term responsibility and care. So that was important to us. We, yes. we we knew the odds were against it, but we were willing to give it the best shot that we could. Okay, good. Now, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I think that was important. Okay. Yeah, very important. Um, and, and ultimately, he did not meet those criteria. Uh, and we can go back through any of the details that you want, but um, they actually ignored our contract and they ignored the actual Icelandic release permit that uh, dictated intervention had to take place because one of the biggest no-nos to releasing an animal First of all, killer whales are not solitary animals. They need to be socially integrated. He wouldn't be able to survive on his own. He wasn't socially integrated and he would solicit for attention to humans. Mm -hmm. And that's predictable. We know that that's what's going to happen, right? Uh, We hoped we could get around it. We didn't. Uh, And every chance he was given with wild whales, wide open ocean or any other scenario, he chose humans. Mm -hmm. Um, in the permit, that is a legal term. It's called nuisance behavior. It's dangerous to him. It's dangerous to humans. Uh, and it's cause for intervention, amongst other things. He, he didn't was never able to feed himself either. And, and let me just state at the end of this, too, that I think is important for everybody, because you'll hear in the public domain, well, at least he died free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, right. Keiko was never released. He was never free. He was always under the care of man. There was a 22-day period where they left him out because they had to run from a storm. And 22 days later, he ended up in Halsa, Norway. Uh, It looks from satellite data like he just followed the shipping routes, the fishing vessels. Uh, And he went right to humans. Kids got in the water with him in Halsa, Norway. Um, He was under human support the rest of his life there. He was malnourished. They thought he'd go out and feed himself and hunger would be a motivator. Um, it was the most famous case of animal abuse that the the world just doesn't fathom. That's a, that's, I heard you say that on another podcast directed at the zoological community and that really stuck with me. And I, one, I appreciate your willingness to say that because we don't step up and say these things and you are an expert mm-hmm. And, you know, because we're worried about getting fired or we're worried about this or that. So I, I really appreciate it. Um, when you say they, when you're referencing they in these scenarios, is they the friends of uh, Kiko? Are these the, uh, is this the whole group that was put together? Who Who's they in that reference? 
Well, it's it's the same people that are now involved in in Friends of Tokate, Friends of Lolita. Um, it was at that time Earth Island Institute, Dave Phillips, Mark Berman, uh, the infrastructure behind that. It was uh, Jean Michel Cousteau, Charles Vinnick, who who was his right was his business guy, right hand man. That their organization was Ocean Futures. And then a lot of the usual suspects uh, that have been involved in these efforts to, uh, frankly, to to go out and release all of SeaWorld's whales and every killer whale yeah. they can get their hands on. Yeah. Um, so they, you, you ended up writing a book about it, but I heard you say that along the way you resigned from the project because they would not listen to your expertise. Mm-hmm. They brought you in for your expertise but when it didn't go the way they wanted it to, and they were trying to capture some shots and these, you know, unicorns and yep. rainbows and sunset, um, maybe just speak a little bit about that. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Well, again, his um, reintroduction was a systematic process. And so we had been through 18 months of conditioning to a very, very specific goal. Mm-hmm. Uh when the day came that we had the Icelandic permit to introduce him to wild whales, there were protocols in place to follow that, that format. And we knew that it was going to be a drawn out process, probably last several seasons, right? This wasn't going to be a one-off and he swims off into the sunset. He he was an adult bull male. We didn't even know if the wild pods that are matriarchal and usually only have one big male were, were going to accept him. In fact, it was, you know, those of us that knew and understood this, we fully expected that this could be very dangerous for Keiko, that he could get, you know, attacked. So we wanted to create this as a very passive, very benign process from a distance. Just let them sort of hear him, let him hear them uh, and and take it one day at a time. But the organization in charge, Ocean Futures, Jean-Michel, they were a documentary company and they wanted the shot. And they all really, truly believed that he was not going to come back with us that day, that he was going to swim off into the sunset with a pot of whales. Wow. And that's the that's the uphill battle we fought day in and day out on that project. Um, so when we went out, protocols got thrown out the window. Everybody got so excited. It was a circus on the water. I mean, there were six boats. There was a tour boat, VIPs, people who contributed to it. There was a helicopter in the air. They even wanted to put a diver in the water with a camera. Oh boy. Talk about the the worst thing you could do for animal. You know, if you're thinking just about the animal, right. Is this well in the pod that part of the protocol was we were going to take him out a half a mile into the path of the wild whales and then go neutral and get out of the picture. Right. Just let, see what happens. Um, For six hours prior to that point, one of the boats went out and tracked the wild whales and they were trying to dart them with biopsy darts and suction cup tags. And that pot of whales had a newborn calf in it. So by the time they got to us, the situation was so excited Hmm. and the wild pod was in defensive mode, swimming a tight formation in a zigzag format. Um, it just blew up. It blew up and it was traumatic for Keiko. He, they went one way, he went the other way. We, it took us all day to find him. 
And when we did, uh, I've never seen a killer whale like that. The eye, his eyes were bugged out of his head. He was physically exhausted. He, he was literally, uh, what I would describe as completely incoherent. And I'd never seen that before and I'll never forget it. It's burned into my memory. Yeah. But I, what you say is so profound because we ideal idealize the movie and the free willy. And, you know, I, I equate everything you're saying to elephants because I grew up with elephants and we're going through exactly the same, frankly, bullshit with elephants, you know, let's turn them loose in the utopian wild and all that. And mm-hmm. I'm almost in tears hearing you talk about this because for animal people and those who truly understand the welfare of animals and the well-being, you know, what you say is so profound. Thank you for, you know, your willingness to articulate it and that you wrote a book about it. I think even though it feels like we're swimming upstream telling these stories, it's it's mm-hmm. important. And I'm doing my best to try to get out the other side of the story. So that now it leaves us. So you did, did you resign at that point? Is that what I heard you say? On well, yeah, I'm sorry. I skipped the whole point of That's your question. Okay. No, no, <laughs> so, that was so great. easy to get off on a tangent, but yeah, when we came back in, when we finally got him back in, it took us, it took us a long time to get him back to the base of operations. Um, the organization wanted to take him out again right away the next oh, day my. and do an introduction. And we, myself and three of my colleagues uh, that were, directly responsible for Keiko. Um, we said, you can't, you can't knowingly put him in harm's way. You can't do that. And you can't ask us to do that. I'm not going to put him in harm's way. And so we negotiated, we tried to talk reason to them because reason throughout the whole project so far had worked, you know, they had understood and listened and willing to consider, um, all the points that we had raised. Well, this time they didn't, they said, you know, uh, take him out. You have to take him back out. And we went, well, you're not going to do it with me. Yeah. I'm, I'm resigning. And you know, Heidi, it's really interesting because when they did try to take him out, he refused to go out. It took him three more days to get him back out again. Interesting. Yeah. Not surprised because it traumatized him. I mean, look, when we go through a traumatic experience, you're not going to jump right back on, uh, that horse to, to use a, yeah, uh, exactly. And I could picture uh, dogs, horses, elephants. I was raised around more um, hoofstock, right? Camels, Mm -hmm. llamas. I can can equate that, what you're saying, to any of those animals. If something scared them or traumatized them, they won't go towards it anymore. They don't want to do it. And we have to be there to encourage them. And he, he probably lost some trust because, you know, you guys had to do things uh, that weren't, weren't appropriate not only lost trust, but unraveled 18 months of, yeah, of exactly. effort you yeah. know, that we had. And I, and I, I use an analogy a lot of times. I I'm like, you know, um, when I was a kid growing up, you know, my mother used to tell us all, Hey, I've got a cake in the oven. Don't slam any doors. It, well, it, we slammed the door big time and that thing <laughs> collapsed. Yes. Yeah. I, I get that. So I had wanted to, I knew, again, I knew about this story. My kids were young at the time. And as an animal person, I knew there was more to this story even long before I was podcasting or that. But now fast forward and it's come full circle because now we have uh, Lolita who, uh, I'll let Mm -hmm. you tell the folks who Lolita is and what's happening on that front. Sure. Well, she might take the the banner from Keiko as the world's most famous killer whale. 
here real soon. Um, she has been in Miami Sea Aquarium for over 50 years. She is now estimated to be, she's a female, a killer whale. She's estimated to be between 56 and 58 years of age. Um, her given name is Tokite. Her stage name is Lolita. Most of the world knows her by Lolita. Um, she has not been, she was housed within a male killer whale up until 1980 when he died. She has, her pool mates have been white Pacific white sided dolphins ever since then. Uh, and she is perhaps one of the most loved and coddled whales in the care of man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know I never worked with her myself. I want to be clear about that, but I met, I've met her several times. I know some of her oldest and longest tra standing trainers in very, very well. And, um, she is a unique animal just as Keiko was. She, I've worked with a lot of killer whales, Heidi. I'll tell you, um, killer whales have a very distinctive, uh, disposition and personality as uh -huh. an apex predator. Uh, Keiko was nothing like that. Probably the worst possible whale you could ever attempt to release. Um, Lolita or uh, I'm going to, I'm going to stick to calling her Lolita just because I think most people know that name. Okay. Um, Lolita is, is also a really bad candidate for what they're proposing. So let's fast forward to today to finish the summary here. Um, a group has been trying to return her to where she was collected from in 1970 in Pacific Northwest uh, for many years, varied attempts, lawsuits, this, that, the other. Um, a couple of weeks ago, they announced that they were going to return her to the Pacific Northwest and they have uh, billionaires involved that can fund it and all that stuff. The owner of the Indianapolis Colts and a Key West developer. The difference this time is the current owner of Miami Sea Aquarium is going along with it. That's never happened before. So that gives me grave concerns. And we can get into why this is not in her best interest uh, and what it entails. Um, well, let's here, do that in just a second. I'm talking with Mark Simmons. He's the author of Killing Keiko and the Free Willy Whale. And we're just getting into that there is a movement now to free another whale because the first one went so well. We decided we should do this again. So they want to free a whale named Lolita, they being friends of Lolita. And I, as Mark just said, the unfortunately, the Dolphin Company, which owns now the Miami Aquarium, and uh, the owner of the, the Colts, is it? Indianapolis, Indianapolis Colts, yeah. yeah. Um, Jim Irsay. So now go ahead and uh, get into why, why, they want, why they think this is a good idea. I've heard you uh, talk about her age, her, she's got some issues, that type of thing, and how this would all really go badly. Well, this is, I'm sure you can share my frustration because this is where the rubber meets the road, right? Fantasy is an easy sell. Yes. It sounds good. Even to me, it sounds good, you know, and I know better. Yeah. Um, it's deceptively simplistic, but life doesn't work that way. You're, you're not going to understand what's in her best interest until you get into the nuance of her particular history. Um, she was uh, estimated to be between three and six years of age when she was collected. So she was still sort of just following along with her mother. She probably had done some hunting on her own. Um, but what we dismiss 
Heidi so easily in all these conversations is the power of an individual's learning history. In in behaviorism and psychology, this is called ontogenetic history. It is everything. It's who we become. It's what makes you, you and me, me. Yes. And if we think about uh, a child that was young in the Amazon and, and we grabbed them and raised them in New York City and now they're 75, 80 years old and we say, you know what, we're taking you back to the Amazon because that's better for you. That's exactly what they're talking about doing. And while it sounds good on the outside to people who don't know anything about her or her history, it's probably the most cruel thing that you could do to her at this point in her lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I totally understand that. And again, I'm going to go back to what my experience with elephants, where they're trying to, you know, they're taking elephants out of zoos. They want to take them away, of course, from all circuses. That's a horrendous life, even though the oldest elephants right now in, uh, I believe outside of Southeast Asia, but at least in North America are a retired circus elephant in her seventies and a zoo elephant in their 70s. That doesn't follow the narrative. That doesn't support their narrative that no, it's the horrible. Facts, the facts don't support their narrative. And that, you said that about Lolita, which I thought was interesting. One of the podcast hosts was saying to you, yeah, but she's in a small pool and all that. And we all, I mean, I think we would all agree. And I, I know from listening to you, you would stand up, and you already did in a huge way with Kiko, and say, no, I won't support that. I disagree with it. I'm I'm willing to do that as well. I'm not just here saying everything's good on this side and there's no problems. But at the same time, I know from being an animal trainer that even if she's in a small pool, which, again, there are regulations in place, and unfortunately, seems like they didn't follow all of those regulations, but they're getting mental and physical stimulation. And mm-hmm. um, I always tell people, I was a spokesperson for exhibited animals for many years when I was still out in the field and I was working for a trade association. And I used to say, okay, you think it's horrible circus elephants are traveling and they're, you know, how the the words they use, dragging them along and all that. I say, so utopia for a family is the mom and dad and the kids and you live in a suburb with a picket fence and a swing set with a park nearby. Now you've got a, a, a woman of color without much means, living with a single child in a project high-rise. Does that mean it's Mm. abusive? No, it means that they adapt. And frankly, what I know about people and animals best is, and my father and grandfather preached this because I'm a third generation, we adapt and you, Mm. you help them, you teach them what they need to know, and then you set the bar high and they will meet your expectations and actually exceed it. We lower the bar so far on all of this stuff. I'm getting on a tangent now, but no, but you're you're exactly right. And yeah. until we are willing to accept that we have to look at the 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 history of the unique individual, we're yeah. never going to get around this subject. We're never going to do what's in the best interest of that particular animal. They're right. each individuals, just as you and I are, and we're made up of all those experiences that you're talking about. Now, if our background, regardless of the environment, we've seen this over and over and over again, and we. Can can even identify with it as humans it doesn't matter the environment you come from what matters is if is if it is a loving environment a positive right. environment and that's what you're going to always go back to that's what you're going to always seek that's what you're going to measure everything else in your life by so 
you know, we know that Lolita's life there has, and let's, let's set aside a moment, the size of the pool. We all hate that. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a little bit ticked at the zoological community really for allowing that pool to continue for as long as it has. Agreed. We, yeah. We should have put pressure on it because we know better. Yeah. But, but let me be really, really clear and literal on this. The size of the pool makes it easier to provide her an enriching life. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make it in a small pool doesn't make that impossible. And they have done an incredible job because regardless of what you want to say about her pool. And again, I'm, I'm on that argument. I hate her pool, but regardless of what we want to say, something's working really well for her. Cause she's, 56 to 58 Absolutely. years old. Absolutely, that's right. She's outliving probably her wild, the you know, the Yeah, the wild her wild whales. counterparts. So, yeah. yes, she it's is. working. And, yes, we have to do the best. And I want to make a point that you're saying this not just as an author. You are actually a behaviorist. So mm-hmm. you're an expert. <clears throat> we don't look to the experts. We look to the people who provide a narrative we like. And so I want to be really clear about that. You're, what you're saying should carry a great deal of weight for a listener trying to, you know, wade their way through this. You, you know of what you speak. And uh, I, just, I just want to drive that point home. I think that's very important. Okay, yeah, so there, there, <clears throat> yeah, there have ahead. been conversations about this, Heidi, as you know, and including on elephants where, you know, the people who want to, uh, I'll use the air quotes here, set them free in one way or another, uh, are comprised of biologists and people involved in logistics, yeah. journalists, philosophers, not one single person that actually understands the care day in and day out of that animal, a behaviorist, a veteran, uh, a, a, their vet yeah. who's provided that care. And there are other aspects of Lolita as well. We've talked about behavior, and I think that's the capstone. I really do. It is the beginning and the end of any discussion that involves change, major change in her life, because that's what we're talking about. Yeah. But there are other issues here, such as her health, logistics and other facets right. of this. That yeah. And touch on that because she is an older whale and she mm-hmm. has some issues. She doesn't acclimate. Well, she doesn't like change essentially, I guess is what I heard you say. And yeah. so, yeah, touch on that a little bit and how that the transport of this, what is it? 20 hour trip and different water and, and uh, not parasites, bacteria, that type of thing. I think those right. are all interesting aspects. So, I, I was talking to my husband about it. He's uh, in the circus. We call him a town guy, meaning he's it's like the military. You're a civilian or you're in the military. Right. So <laughs> circus people are funny that way. Uh, we accept everything. You know, we we grew up with like the mini United Nations. But so he comes at it. It's always been healthy for me because he comes at it from a totally different place. And mm. so we're talking about this and he's and I was I played him a bit of the podcast where you're talking about bacteria and transport because he said well you know why is that such a big deal and i i played that and he said wow so i thought he was a good slice of an average listener who doesn't have this Mm. background so that's why Mm. i'd like you to expand upon that a bit well yeah again a lot more than meets the eye so first of all as we all age our immune system becomes less effective right we're not as good at producing naive uh, lymphocytes t-cells b-cells that fight off foreign things. Um, we already know clinically that she's at that point. 
you know, she, she has a limited ability to raise a defense. When you go through a transport, here's an animal that, first of all, think about all the weight on her lungs. Her lungs are in the bottom part of her body. And when she's out of the water or even just in shallow water, which is what would be in the transport crate, all that weight is on her lungs. So you got a couple of football players sitting on your chest. Wow. For 15 or 20 hours, you've got noise that is in her sensitive hearing range um, that you're not accustomed to. You've got the pressurization of the cabin and all this time you can't tell her what's happening. She she doesn't know why this is yeah, happening. Yeah. Um, this is a flight. I take it. She's it being, it's a flight. It, it would be, be a flight. flight. And also the, they have to get her in the box. The, so the minute it, when we say water to water time, 15 to 20 hours, we're talking about the minute they would start to drop the water level on her in her current place to the point of where she swims out of a stretcher in the other location. So that's our water to water time that involves several modes of transfer transportation. The, you know, the, the craning, the, the transport box that she's in, uh, to a flatbed, to a flatbed, to the airport, uh, lift on the plane, plane to a barge, all these things that have wow. to happen. So there's a lot going on there. They're not going to just put her in there. Now she's, you know, I've heard all this talk about 93 year old whales. First of all, again, for the general public that may not know this, no reason to know this. We don't know that that's all extrapolated math, right? Because the only way we know an animal's age is by the dentin layers in their teeth. And until you pull a tooth and do that, you don't know the animal's age. So they're extrapolating these ages. What the science we do know shows us is that female whales of Lolita's type have a life expectancy of about 60. Okay. Now, there's going to be some that live a few years longer than that and some that don't make it that far. But 60 on average. Um, so she's arguably within two to four years of her life expectancy. And now you're putting her through this, right? She has a compromised immune system because of her age. Her immune system will be further compromised from the stress of that transport. And she has antibiotic resistance to a lot of the most common antibiotics. Oh, wow. Because she's been sick a lot in yeah. the last few years. Uh, she's, she's not a robustly healthy animal. She's needed a lot of support. Now you put her in a cesspool and the Pacific people who live in the Pacific Northwest are going to get angry at me saying that, but I'm sorry, we've got our priorities wrong because our oceans are a mess Mm -hmm. and you've got persistent ocean contaminants. You've got garbage along, uh, the seashore. You've got our runoff from land, um, bacterias, pathogens, and the viruses she's never been exposed to. So she would survive transport but she would not, in my opinion, survive the four to six weeks after. And she would go into the sea pen, which would be ocean water. So that's what you're saying. Yeah, you can't control the water quality in an open sea pen. Right. I also heard you say something about, uh, so there's already a precarious situation up there. They're already with the Mm -hmm. whales and the populations. So now... On, on my other podcast, which is Dog on Good Information, um, we talk about best practices, animal mm-hmm. husbandry, which goes out the window with dogs, right? All the canine flus and stuff. Sharing water bowls starts there, right? So right. if you have a precarious uh, whale situation up in the north, the northeast, and you've got uh, contaminants in the ocean. I live in Florida. We have epic red tides. Uh, red tide, is that what we call it? Yeah, red tide. Um, that they say are, you know, unprecedented. So I can appreciate that little bit. 
that she could also bring, you know, the, it could go both ways. She could certainly get mm-hmm. sick from it, but she could also introduce something to what's already precarious up there with their whale population and what's going on. So it would work, yeah, it could work both ways. Yeah, that is, that, that is true. Uh, I think the threat is greater to her, her than yeah. to them. But again, I'll go back, you know, um, they'll talk about, they're just going to put her in a C pen. They're not going to release her, but I know these people. Yeah. It has always been about release. And, you know, once you put an animal in a C pen, the other thing to understand is that you get a lot of the um, general public that doesn't know any better. I'm not going to vilify them, but they don't know any better. They're emotionally driven and engaged and they'll go and attempt to cut the net and set her free. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And we've had uh, situations like that in the past with dolphins that has ended up killing the animals because they get tangled in that that opening. Yeah. Um, you know, and so there's, there's hazards like that, that they just can't control. And then of course, any biologist, I think that's honest is going to tell you, look, this population of Southern resident whales is vulnerable for a a multitude of reasons. Um, they're at uh, about 73, they believe right now, which is not a sustainable population. Their food source is threatened. Uh, and they have mercury poisoning and other lead and other types of poisoning. So uh, the last thing you want to do is introduce a potential threat to an already vulnerable population. Uh, This is not, let's, let's be really clear here. This is not about species preservation or what's good for wildlife. It's an emotional stunt. And a lot of the information about it is misguided Uh, misinformation, disinformation uh, to pull at your heartstrings. But what's best for Lolita, you know, if Jimmy Ursay really cares about her and he wants to write a blank check, I would build her a new enlarged habitat as close to her current facility as you can make it. Uh, And I would move her there with her pool mates and keep her old trainers and her routines. She is really set in her ways and does not adapt well to change. So this is the last thing I would do to her is is take her back to the Pacific Northwest. Yep. And I appreciate that. So, yeah, I mean, I'm hearing this, equating it to I was born in Rhode Island. I live in Mm -hmm. Florida now. You know, I was there for a year. Um, and now when I go to cold weather, you know, I live in Florida. I don't know if your blood gets thicker or thinner, but we definitely are different. So, you know, I'm not a Rhode Islander, you know. So sure. the fact that they're with these whales, like, well, that's where they came from. And again, you're explaining how the learned behaviors. I totally understand that aspect from being an animal trainer and seeing how well one they adapt and it's like people bring home these shelter dogs and they spend way too much time reminding them where they came from instead of starting new and just moving forward and giving them new memories. And, you know, they let them mm-hmm. hide under the bed for a year because they got to act, you know, we got to let them know all they're doing is feeding on their, their prior stuff. So move on. Um, Jimmy Ursay is the, from the Colts, right? The, the funder right. of this. Right. Have you, have you, would you, did you have a chance to talk to him one-on-one? I have, I, I have not. Some of the group that is trying to speak out on 
Tokate Lolita's behalf has reached out to him. Uh, they've kind of gotten the cold shoulder. I, I think he's been really misinformed. I have a right. hard time believing that he's a bad player and all this. I think he's just really been misinformed. Unfortunately, he said on camera in front of the public that, you know, when I make a a promise I deliver, she's going home. So once somebody makes a commitment like that in yeah. such bravado, oftentimes they're not willing to to back uh, back out of that. So I don't have much hope he's going to listen to rational or experienced thought. I, I was listening to the press conference and heard uh, Charles Vinnick, who you mm. had um, been involved with on the Kiko thing, very emotional crying and i i actually was annoyed watching it after knowing the story about from you know from you from an animal trainer behaviorist hearing the story and watching him talk about how he was involved in that like it was a good thing and that we're Mm going to do it again and i mean I, i can't even get my head around that but people fall for that obviously it was all it was all just emotional stuff so where does the Marine Mammal, is it called the Marine Mammal Protection Act, I believe? Or is it there, is, yeah. yeah. Where are they, Where the USDI, USDA, are none of these organizations involved and don't they have some responsibility? And where are the trade associations? Well, yes. Yeah. So, so who regulates this, right? Well, first of all, the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Animal Welfare Act regulate right. her care. Uh, and also her her transport if she was to be moved or exported. Uh, USDA APHIS, APHIS is Animal Plant and Health Inspection Service. They are the actual agency responsible for inspecting her habitat and making sure it meets the regulated uh, standards. Okay. Um, they're no longer involved because of a loophole that USDA uh, overseas animals that are in public display. Well, they took her off of public display because they didn't want to fix her stadium. Right. Yeah. The when the dolphin company bought, right. they, yeah, they had a, an agreement. I heard that. Yeah. Right. Right. <clears throat> so when people talk about her retiring and not doing shows, that has nothing to do with her. Yeah. In fact, they do mock shows for her because she loves them. Yep. It really perks her up. So they still do mock shows for her for her benefit. Um, that was all about the money. That was all about not having to fix the stadium. Now, listen, she's in a terrible situation. The life support system is is you know limping along. That's her water quality, which is critical to her health care. Uh, the stadium surrounding area is is got black mold everywhere. Uh, they've tried to. Uh, patch up some of that, but you can't just paint over black mold. Right. Um, the concrete is questionable. You know, uh, she needs shade structure. She needs a nutritionist in there. Uh, she needs some of her most experienced trainers over her years to be in there overseeing her during a very uh, vulnerable period. And she's still not out of the woods with a, uh, a respiratory infection. So, you know, it, it's a precarious situation and uh, making any kind of change has to be just, you have to be extremely, extremely careful sure. uh, not to upset that apple cart. So but, there's no oversight. I, I get the, the, the Animal Welfare Act, USDA, APHIS, because mm-hmm. we have exhibited animals. So if they're not on exhibition, then we don't have to be licensed. But just by virtue of it being a killer whale, does the M, uh, Marine Mammal Protection Act, No, there's no over 
regulating body at this point to ensure? Well, that's that's the question, Heidi. There doesn't appear to be. It would fall to National Marine Fisheries. However, National Marine Fisheries doesn't have a a a physical agency. They have their stranding coordinators. They don't really have anything in place to police this or to inspect or monitor it. So here we have an animal that falls under the Endangered Species Act. Right. In a really bad situation where the standards of care that have kept her alive and well for 50 plus years are no longer being met. Yeah, that's And that's concerning. Yeah, that's That's where you would think that there would be from the the zoological community saying that this needs to be addressed and, you know, we Mm -hmm. demand that. And that should be happening. I liken this to uh, elephant sanctuaries, right? There's some elephant sanctuaries that are very popular. And to me, a sanctuary is a black hole for elephants. I think it should be illegal because, one, they they don't breed. So you have a red zone endangered species, the Asian elephant. And you're taking a young, viable breeding elephant out of the population to to let him roam free in their sanctuary mm-hmm. when, in fact, they're in great health, they're trained, they can be palpated, they can be ultrasound, all those things, right, that yep. make the best breeding stock, which is why circuses have had almost the greatest success rate of the birth of live Asian elephants, Um well, and now's but, the worst time to abandon that expertise when right. we look at their plight in the wild. That's what that's exactly where I'm going with this. So they there's just a just watching online, they're taking elephants out of I wanna say Arizona uh, zoo and they're putting them at the elephant sanctuary in Tennessee. So when we hold elephants, we have to do this this goes back to what I was asking about with the whale. We're required to do their feet. They have to have their feet um filed, they like a pedicure. Sure. Because they're not walking as much as they do in the wild. Because they're not starving. They don't walk 30 miles a day because they're not starving. When an elephant isn't starving, they don't necessarily walk 30 miles a day, right? Right. They're looking for breeding population. We don't do any more than we have to. Yeah, and elephants, I've been around them my whole life. I can tell you, they don't move. You could turn them loose in a field, which I grew up with. And they don't go very far. If they're fed and they're happy, they're... But... um, so they don't have to do, we have to do it under under um, USDA, the Animal Welfare Act, as you said, APHIS, Animal Plant Health Inspection Services. But they're not because they're not on display. Right. So the elephants go in there, they have tuberculosis or they've had, I don't want to speak out of school, and they don't have to do the trunk washes and test in the same way that we do if we have our elephants out on the shows where, you know, they're in view of the public. So I feel like the same thing is happening here. They're they're flying under the radar, and there's such an outcry when the killer whale is doing a show. But now you got a killer whale not doing a show is not well, being inspected you know, if in the I, same if, way. You're gonna you're gonna get me worked up. So, so this is where one of the areas where I have a hard time containing myself because the sanctuary, this term, right? This is this is where we are in society today. We're so willing to accept the framework of a term and not look into what it actually means. The regulation's not there. Everybody thinks this idea of sanctuary. And here's another very dangerous thing about this. We all require, we all require a job. All of us. Absolutely. Having nothing to do is the worst thing you can do to, to any animal or person. And yet what they do at these sanctuaries is say, we're going to give you a big space and let an elephant be an elephant or a whale be a whale. Well, 
let's translate that to what people do understand. Let's take your golden retriever or your cat, and we're going to put them out in the woods, and we're going to put a fence around them to protect them. That's okay. They're going to get their food, but you can't go out and hug and cuddle interact them or play with, with them or mm-hmm. interact with them. You have to let a dog be a dog. And you tell me how awful that is for that animal. Again, we have to remember their history. Yes. And they have a positive history with us. The human animal bond is not uh, a crime. It no. is fact, in fact, in my mind, more important now than it's ever been in human history. We'll lose species um, without it. We are already yeah. losing species. That's, and the only that's, way that's that the we're... tears for me, that's where the yeah, damn tears exactly. come for me is that we're going to lose these animals because we're taking them out of zoos. We're taking them. Out of we, we we are. And it's and let crazy. me translate that to Lolita's situation. Yeah. We've got people saying, let's take her to the Pacific Northwest. I want to say, look, when you people in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm talking about the whole of society, but listen, when when we start taking care of those whales correctly, yeah. then we can talk about what we're going to do with Lolita in the Pacific Northwest. But get your house in order. Amen. Right. And by the way, why do we care about killer whales? Because we see them, because we had an experience to actually see them move, to see them blow the air through the hole, to see people interact with them. We didn't give a shit about killer whales before there was a a SeaWorld or whoever started it. But that's what makes me nuts when I hear this stuff. It's like... Come but, on, but the evolu- there's an evolution there, though, too, Heidi, that I think we often forget about. You know, when zoos and things like this first came up, society, we needed what you're talking about. We needed to be reminded or we needed to learn yeah. that, hey, there's animals here that are really cool and we should preserve them. Well, then we started loving animals too much and we oh, loved yeah. animals to death. Keiko is a perfect example, uh, example of loving animals to death. Uh, what they're trying to do to Lolita, same example. The elephant, same example. We're at an evolution in the zoological phase right now where we have to celebrate animals' differences in their ability to adapt to environments. We have to understand their habitats and what requires for them to thrive. We have to develop sustainable populations of the care of man. And we have to start developing the science of reintroduction. Mm-hmm. Because there's no way many of our isolated wild populations will ever survive if we cannot introduce new genetics at some point for them. Explain the R's. I heard this. I heard you. This was very good. The reintroduction. Uh, there's three, mm-hmm. I think, three R's. So explain the difference. Yeah. Release, rehabilitation, and reintroduction. So release is a totally emotional thing. It's like, you know, here's Winky and they need to, you know, be in the forest or the ocean or wherever. Let's... Let's fly, be free. So like Um, Keiko, that's the Keiko story. Like Keiko, like Lolita. There's no biological significance in that situation. It's purely emotional. Rehabilitation is an animal that is born and raised and lives in the wild, is is injured either by interaction with humans or some other way where they're brought in, they're healed, and then they're re-released to the wild. Uh, totally different situation there. That's the hallmark uh, then, of SeaWorld's, a lot of SeaWorld's that, work, is it not? Don't they do some right. fantastic work on that? They do. They yeah. do. And at times they have been the best in the world at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people don't know about that. They don't know that happens. Know. They don't know that our zoological base is is the showroom floor front and center in species preservation. And not just by the money they put into it, but the skill sets, yeah. the, the know-how, the equipment. 
you know how much equipment it takes to transport a large animal. I mean, you know, and expertise. Yeah. Uh, but then there's the reintroduction. Okay. And this is the evolution of where we are now because we've got to master the ability to uh, to reintroduce animals to the wild from a biological management standpoint. This is to introduce new genes to help uh, struggling populations reach a sustainable level. Are you familiar at all with the vaquita? No, I'm not. So this is a really probably the cutest little cetacean dolphin you've okay. ever seen in your life. I mean, talk about a perfect way to raise money with plush toys. It's great. <laughs> They're just the cutest thing ever, but they live uh, in the Pacific uh, off of Mexico and they're, they're literally just about to go extinct. There's just a handful of individuals left and they, they die because they swim. Uh, the fish that swim under them are highly sought in Asia for their fertility. Oh, okay. And when they're hunting this fish, it the vaquita get caught in the net. Well, it's too too. We made an effort a few years ago to try to bring one into uh, the care of man so that we could build up the population to a sustainable level. Well, it's too late because we don't know enough about them to know how to provide a thriving environment for them. Um, that's a situation right there where had we uh, developed that our, that science of reintroduction, we could have supported that population. Okay. And there are a lot of other populations, including the Southern resident populations that will, could benefit from that science in the future. So, you know, we've got to stop in my opinion. Uh, first of all, I don't like the word captivity because it, it sets off the wrong I'm so glad you said this. I heard you say this, and I have some my friends in the exhibited animal community. We've these words have been co-opted by the animal rights groups. I mean, that's that's what it is: puppy mill, right. adopt, don't shop, captivity. Mm -hmm. Captivity is now a horrible word. It's one of the most responsible, loving things you can do to have a human animal bond. So I have a friend with bears who says, "In loving human care," that's right. how she describes. Captivity. But well, well, it's the same thing. We don't talk about our pets in captivity. It's ridiculous. Right. If you did, you'd be like, that's absurd. I love my dog. Well, guess what? <laughs> Animals in professional zoological, our top zoos and, and, uh, and conservation areas are taken far better care of and loved just as much as any other animal I've seen. So when we start with that word, we start with the wrong framework and trajectory, and yeah. then we never get to have an objective conversation. Yet our zoological body of knowledge, which I believe belongs to the whole of society, is is one of the biggest tools in our arsenal to fight against extinction. It really is. And it has an important role in that future. It's ever evolving. And yet we sit here today having conversations about animals like Lolita uh, and being criticized with information that was true 40 years ago, but yeah. is not true today. Yeah. But life was different 40 years ago. That argument, I, I, one of the podcasts you were on, I heard the host kind of saying, Oh, we can't, we, we're, we do so much better and almost shame on us. I don't feel that way. I think it's we're no different than any other business. Lawyers, doctors, waitresses, I mean, pick an industry, find the yep. lowest common denominator, hold them up and say, I don't care what they tell you, this is what it's all about. 
I've lived with animals my whole life, and I'm in I'm 60. And um, honestly, I wish we could care for animals the way we did when I was young. In some ways, yes, we have yeah. evolved, and it's great. What a, I think one of the evolutions. It's minor, but. We now have all these treats for zoo animals, like they'll freeze fish in ice or, you know, whatever, enrichments. Those are very cool. But I grew up in this, you know, in the 60s. We didn't have stuff like that for people. You know, we were very yeah. practical. We were. <laughs> so I don't understand that argument. Like, you know, we look at a, a, the state of the art zoo now and say, why didn't we do that in, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago? We didn't even well, people I, I, didn't I, even live like that seventy years ago. Yeah, you know? I, I agree with you. I think you're right. The, there, there's there. You can take some from both, and all. SeaWorld's yes. a great example that uh, to compare to your example is that when I was at SeaWorld, we were in the water with the <clears throat> whales for everything. Yeah, everything. I mean, yeah. every session you did with them, you were in the water. If you got, you walked out and you were going to from A to B, and the quickest way was to swim across instead of walk around. You swam across. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that was the safest we ever were. The whales were so used to us being in the water. It just wasn't a thing. Exactly. And, you know, now AZA zoos, American Zoological, what is it? American Zoological Association or Zoos yeah. and Aquariums. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the, they're not any, they're in a, they're a trade association. They get a lot mm -hmm. more credit than that. But they, all elephants had to go, first they did away with rides. Mm -hmm. And then all elephants had to go to protected contact, right? So you've got elephants there who've been handled and safely handled and you walk them, you march them around, you have some interaction with them. They mentally and physically get worked and now they're in protected contact. ZAA hasn't, Zoological Association of America, more of the private owners, not the public zoos. Uh, and so they have the opportunity to do more, make more decisions with their animals. But yeah. what a loss. You've got these elephants who are trained wonderfully. They reproduce terrifically. Ringling Brothers Circus elephants had one of the greatest success rates of births because they were mentally and physically stimulated, you know. And, and, they were, and that contact was a normal part of their life. Yes. And, yeah, and now yeah. they're being stuck in a sanctuary or not being bred or those things. And there, there's just a whole conversation around that. But I so equate it to where we are. I want to back up. You were talking about uh, friends of, I've heard it both ways, friends of Lolita, and then it says friends of Toki. I've been looking for it lately on Charity Navigator or that because I want to see their budget. Because mm -hmm. my experience with groups like this, when they want to free an elephant or free a whale, they get a lot of money out of it. There's a lot of donations. So not only well, do they the get the emotion... Yeah, the media event they held, I don't know if you saw it a couple of weeks ago, the, there was one purpose behind that, and it was to raise donations. Raise so you're absolutely, yeah, because yeah. you, and you get the, you know, the Jimmy Ursays and the, and the Pritim, I don't, I don't actually know how to say his name and I don't want to get it wrong. Right. But, well, it's his second uh, name, you know, he, he was, I read his okay. bio, he was like Paul somebody and he changed oh, his name. Yeah, I didn't even know he's got that. A very, but I know he's, read his bio. It's very interesting. But anyhow, okay. go ahead. Yeah. Well, th those guys are, they don't want to use their money, right? Yeah. They'll use some, but they know how it works. You you get somebody in there with their name and the big money and then everybody else goes, well, heck, I'm going to donate, you know, um, they're the first one on the dance floor, but it really just opens the floodgates for donation. And Charles Vinnick is very savvy at that. He knows that. Mm -hmm. And he knows when to turn on the waterworks in front of the camera and all Absolutely. that. I mean, he's a, he's a, he, he's a smart guy. He knows well, how to work yeah. this. Um, 
but you know, none of those guys are animal people. Right. Well, that's <laughs> they don't know. Humane Society right. of the United States, um, all of those, all of those organizations that are the animal rights groups. I always say they're not animal experts. They are experts at uh, media. They're experts right. at spinning a story and they're experts at fundraising and they should probably teach the, college courses on that stuff. They, they should. They're they running a marketing a, campaign. Yeah, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and they, they coin phrases. They co-opt phrases and they coin phrases. So adopt, don't shop, and puppy mill, all that stuff. So now everybody mm-hmm. here's a puppy mill, right? And I'm not being callous. I, I don't want anybody to not take care of animals or to right. breed animals and hoard them or whatever. But I come to it as I, as I see you do, which is why I said at the beginning we have a kinship, um, because we vilify all of them. We just put them all in one bucket. We have to get together as the animal community and the animal experts and come back at this in a bigger and harder way. And yep. um, I, I have a lot of ideas about what that is. I'm going to email you. You'll be tired of hearing from me. But um, they, it's, it's definitely about money. And... They don't, if it wasn't as much about money and emotion, they'd allow the actual animal experts more of a voice in this. And to yeah. me, that's the telling part, right? Well, they, if they do, they're, they're not going to agree with their, their storyline and agenda because they know better. So right. it doesn't, it's not congruent with, with the marketing story. But you just said something, Heidi, that I would really like to touch on. Um that we in the animal community have to have a bigger voice. Something different is happening with Lolita that I've never seen in my 35 years. I've never seen it before and I'm inspired by it. And that is that over 350 years of experience, over 30 uh, of Tokate Lolita's former trainers, veterinarians and caregivers have formed a group And they are, oh, they're pushing back. They're pushing back hard because they all to a person know this will more likely kill her and cause undue suffering than anything else. And they know there's an alternative solution. So I think what they're saying is, no, we're not going to sit and be quiet. We're going to speak to the facts and we're going to say there is a realistic solution for her. No one likes the situation she's in, but there's a realistic solution. So they ha- they are pushing back in a big way. They have zero money. Right. They have zero, uh, you know, they're former uh, trainers. And, and uh, despite what other people think, trainers don't make a lot of money. Um, yeah, that's the biggest but, fallacy of all. We're all in for the money. It I, is, I don't know an animal. Who told me that on my podcast? <laughs> I, show me an animal trainer who's retired rich. We're not oh in my gosh, no kidding. I mean, <laughs> we uh, no love kidding. animals and we want to do right by them. What's the name of the organization? Do you know? By well, Jen? so they're they're they've got a website and they're just organizing. So it's all been rapid, but they're going under the hashtag in the website of uh, Truth for Tokyo and the four is the letter four. So it's Love truth it. for Toki. <laughs> now here's the thing I'm going to push. Anybody wants to do something, there's a petition on change.org. I was just going to say, why can't we do something on change.org? You, yeah, yeah, and it's over 30,000 signatures as of today and in no, t- in no time flat. It's amazing, but we need that over 100,000. And let me tell you why. It's not because the original petition calls for her to be moved for, to SeaWorld which we all kind of know in the professional field, that's not really going to happen. SeaWorld isn't the same SeaWorld anymore. Their, their shareholders are their number one priority. But yeah. Yeah. 
Um, there's good people in SeaWorld, by the way, Pe- yeah. family, I, people I love, no. but they're behind the curtain of a corporate. Same as the big know, zoos. A chairman that yeah. doesn't get the mission, yeah. doesn't understand the mission. They're not the animal people. And, and ironically, Heidi, if you knew the mission and you embraced it, it would benefit your shareholders too. <laughs> I anyway, know. Let's set that aside. We can work on <laughs> so, that another day. <laughs> right. That's a, that's a whole other thing, right? But the petition calls for that. We all know that's not likely. What it really, what's really important about the petition is that with enough signatures, we can get this conversation to the national stage. And that's what we need. That's all we're asking to get this conversation to the national stage because um, her former, the people that really know her, her former caregivers over the last 50 years, they need to be heard. That's who I want to hear from. Exactly. That Those are the people yep. that matter. By the way, why aren't you on Joe Rogan and Mike Rowe and Megan Kelly and Fox? Why aren't you... Why aren't they touring you all over the place telling the story? Yeah, you know, I, I'm sitting here in Montana, and uh, <laughs> I I have a an animal welfare app that that my business sort yeah. of did, spun off in two years ago because I'm a data geek and. Uh, and as we said, you know, you, uh, my joke is you don't need to, to work with animals. You just need to have a lot of friends that have animals. So yeah, exactly. that's where I'm at in my career. And I'm sitting here doing my thing. And, you know, uh, my book's out of print. I, I just wasn't active in this uh, in this arena recently. But when this came up, I, there's no way I could sit and be silent mm-hmm. about it. So uh, those things may happen, but I just don't have an infrastructure for it right now. I, I'm kind of in the same boat. I like I don't want to start my own association or nonprofit mm-hmm. or anything, but there's a couple vehicles I'm looking at because I just I can't sit by. I'm in the exactly the same boat. Generational animal trainer. I know I know right from wrong and I know the experts to look to. So I started the podcast, but I'm I'm kind of not leaving it there. I'm <laughs> keep going, but this is fantastic information. I would love to have you on again because I'd love to delve into blackfish. I yep. that that shit's got to be blown open too. That's just bullshit, baloney, right? I mean, yeah. And I I tell people just quickly on that, and then I'll have you on again if you're willing. But I challenge people to watch that movie again without emotion. Cry your eyes out before you watch it or something. Get over it. And then look for data and statistics and facts and numbers mm-hmm. and see if you find any from the, the side of the blackfish side. I, there was, I, we did that a couple of times. I challenged people to do that. And it's just a bunch of bleeding heart baloney. And we could do it about any industry. And it's just unbelievable. All the good work. I, I'm biting does. my tongue, Heidi. I know. That, you're, that is a whole podcast. That it is. is a whole and I, let's do it because that would be a great one. I'd love to do it. You're on, you're in to. the movie, are you not? Yeah. I am. Yeah. I am. And yeah. in fact, I had more experience with Tilikum than all the other yeah. talking heads in the movie. Yeah, combined. absolutely. So we'll leave it at that. But any, I'm going to let you wrap this up. We've done, a, I think, a great job of speaking to listeners who aren't the zoological community and helping them mm-hmm. understand, if nothing else, that they're just curious to find out more because we've covered so much stuff. But what, what would you want to leave them with? I want you to give you the last word. I, I would just say, you know, the, look for the nuance, look for the experts, understand that killer whales are not magical beings and and they are what they learn, just like we are what we learn. And so uh, don't just make your decisions by the headlines. Do some research and, and you know, uh, verify. Yeah, absolutely. There's always more to the story. And when you can go see for yourself, right? 
Yeah, mm. absolutely. And the other thing is, listen, we all want what's best for her, yeah. right? We do. We really do. Everybody wants to improve her situation. No one agrees with it, but uh, taking her, making such a big change as they've proposed is horrendous. Yeah. Well, great respect for you and your willingness to just put this out there. And thank you so much. I, I'm indebted to you for this conversation and I look forward to more. Absolutely. Thank you, Heidi. Enjoyed it. Thank you, Mark. I feel like we barely scratched the surface of this topic. There's so much information here. And what's really distressing about the scenario is that the experts, the animal trainers, the behaviorists, those people who've actually worked with the whale, are not the ones being listened to. As a matter of fact, it's flying in the face of the information they're providing. Very distressing. I will keep following this story on my Heidi Harriet's Animal Tales Facebook page and Instagram and encourage you to follow along as well. There's a website, Truth for Toki, number four, T-O-K-I. Also, check out in show notes the petition change.org. There's so much more to this story. It's really important for me to tell these stories. So I appreciate your listening in. Please subscribe so you don't miss any of these stories. Rate and review the podcast. And please share it. Very important information. And I hope you'll join me next time for more Animal Tales. Animal Tales.